Look, we figured this out. Like, who yeah. needs Paul? Who needs Paul? Come on. It's Friday, October 26th, 2018, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Molly Quell, Dutch News contributing editor and barely pants person, and with me today is Gordon Derrick, my fellow contributing editor and royal trolling correspondent. Our other regular contributor, Paul Paters, occasional student and expert taxi driver, is not with us today because his invasion fleet got held up going through customs at Dunkirk. Or something like that. Yeah. What is what is the actual reason that the Paul's actual from? reason that Paul's here is apparently he's he, he's very very sick. He's very sick. Yeah. This is the first time we've had a a sick call out on the podcast in two years. Is it really? That's yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, yeah. people have not been here, but it's usually no. like, well, I'm on vacation or I have an exam or something. Yeah, this was the first time. Yeah. Like yeah, this was the first time that Paul messaged or anyone yeah. messaged in the morning. It was like, yo, I can't make it. No, so. and he said he sounded like he was very sick, but he, but he managed, still managed to write the discussion before he got ill, so he knows his priorities. He did, and he included so. an op-path, so we will have an op-path. We will no, have an op yeah. No worries. That's scripted by Paul. Exactly. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll do our best to to, to honor his uh, op uh, qualities in there. We will try. So, uh, so Gordon, why are you the royal uh, trolling correspondent? Uh, I've just been following, obviously, this week's big news, which we'll get on to, uh, about King Willem Alexander uh, and Queen Maxima visiting uh, London this week, and uh, the fact that the king uh, put some little uh, interesting details in his speech to the House of Parliament, I thought. There were uh, a few little, little there were a few Easter eggs. Just little, little Easter eggs, little, little, little sort of sub-tweets. Yeah. Sort of the, yeah. He mentioned Brexit a lot. I love a good noticed. royal sub-tweet. And the big news for you now is that you can now go back to the tradition of uh, getting your pants on at the last minute before the podcast. You know, yes. Because? because we are finally back in my house recording this podcast. Mm. So we have been off for months and months because we were moving and then reconstructing. And we had been recording in a recording studio, yeah. which you would think would be... Better, right? Because it somehow yeah. was like more professional. You think it was actually a proper recording studio on just a room in the house, and yet, and yet, we I feel like we all hated it, and like no yeah. one really liked. It. I mean, especially me, because it meant I had to get up earlier. Yeah, you had to actually go yeah. somewhere else. Go it was somewhere not to else, your house, which was yeah. some garbage. Whereas I always have to cycle for an hour to get here anyway. Yeah, but it was uh it was not. I don't know. We did not have the same uh, gezelligheid in no. our in our studio. It was definitely missing something, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And there were also lots of people clumping about outside the window the whole time. Yeah, there was, was also that, and there was no uh there was crap tea because. There yeah. was no decent and tea. terrible coffee. Terrible coffee. Yeah. So, yeah, no, this is much better. So I'm happy to be back and uh, happy that uh, that Truby is, is asleep on the couch next to us and is very yeah. much enjoying the fact that we are home and hanging out here. Indeed. He looks very chilled and settled. He is zonked out. Yeah. We will have to edit out any dog snoring that occurs <laughs> during the next hour. Almost certainly will. Apologies in advance for the dog for the doggy snoring. I'm not apologizing. The, 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 the listeners should dog. just enjoy the dog snoring that they can get. <laughs> This week, we will tell you what was served at one dinner in the UK last week, why your local hospital maybe have a going out of business sign, and a cat who took an especially long journey. In our discussion, we will talk about Wim Kok, the former prime minister of the Netherlands who died this week. He oversaw the Vassenaar Agreement, same-sex marriage legalization, and the legislation of euthanasia in this country before resigning, along with his entire cabinet, over the Srebrenica massacre. So this week's op-hef, which uh, Paul did very kindly script for us before he went down the lurgy, um, is all about the Dutch musical called Soldat van Oranje. It's a musical based on the true story of resistance hero Erik Hazelhoff Rolfsema, who had written a book on his experiences during the Second World War, which was later turned into a film um, with Rutger Hauer. Ah, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah. A young Rutger Hauer. Oh. 
Um, the musical production was performed in the purpose-built theatre with several stages and a movable audience seating and is very popular. Almost every night it's sold out and it has been since 2010. Uh, but interestingly enough, if you ever ask anybody, you'll never find anyone who admits that they actually went to see the music. This musical. is true. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know anybody that's gone to see no, it. No, in the same way, in 1946, you couldn't find anyone in the country who collaborated with the Germans. Yeah, it's funny how that yeah. works, right? But anyway, the musical is the subject of a recurrent op-ef because every six months uh, there's an announcement and the musical has come to the end of its run and there's and it's uh, people's last chance to go and see it if they haven't seen it already, which seemingly nobody has. Uh, and every single time there's an uproar about it and then they announce, lo and behold, that they're going to extend the run. Um, and that's sure enough, this week it was uh, we came up to that uh, six-month mark again and yet it's extending its run. Of course and this, it does. Yeah, and this led to, obviously, uh, a whole wave of uh, jokes um, on Twitter. Are you gonna um, are you gonna tell us some of these jokes? Uh, yeah, there's a, one person sent a tweet saying if the world ever ends, uh, that there'll still be a few people standing in a hangar somewhere singing the songs <laughs> from Solap and Ohania. That is completely accurate. Yeah, for somebody sure. else somebody else said that uh, they can remember the days when uh, two tickets for Solap and Ohania cost uh, a, a mammoth skin. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody saying that, uh, that they've, uh, there's been so many extensions sold out for Norania now that they're starting to wish the war had been won by the Germans. <laughs> God, that's awful. <laughs> These were Dutch people These on Twitter. These were Dutch people on Twitter. Us, These are right? Dutch tweets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tweets in Dutch do not send your hate mail to us. I'm not, I'm not into it this week, guys. So that's uh, that was the op-hef of the week. That's a good, it's a good op-hef. and it's a it's a biannual op-hef, So we'll have this exact exactly. same conversation again in six months. Indeed, yeah. So I believe we had it six months ago. Almost certainly, yeah. yeah. And in fact, uh, we've, I can officially announce here that we are extending the run of op-hef of the week uh, exactly. by popular demand <laughs> by popular for another demand six months. For another six yeah. months, I think. We need a Dutch news podcast outcha to send out von Aranya, and yeah. that the three of us will sit in the audience and live tweet our experience. That. Yeah, that would be live tweet the whole thing. That would be amazing. Yeah. yeah. The Dutch institution that is not going to be extending its run is uh, the MC Slotervaart Hospital in Amsterdam and the Iselmeer Hospital Group in Flevoland, which announced this week that it closed at short notice after they were declared bankrupt. Their owner, the MC Group filed for bankruptcy, which leaves around 2,500 medical staff and dozens of patients facing an uncertain future. The 150 patients in the Slotovat Hospital will be transferred to other locations in Amsterdam. Insurers have guaranteed that the 200 patients in the Eiselmeer Hospitals can stay until alternatives have been found. Funding for the care of patients already in the hospitals is also guaranteed, but earlier this week, health insurers refused to bail out the MC Group, claiming that it was not their job. According to NOS, a restart of the Iselmeer group may be possible. The province of Flevoland and local municipalities have told Health Minister Bruno Browns that the closure of the hospitals could lead to life-threatening situations due to the lack of other hospitals in the province. So that's been an absolute bombshell story this week. That this hospitals been... going bankrupt It's seems... completely insane. What was the thing this morning that... Um... The staff have not been paid, but yeah. they're turning up anyway to deal with uh, outpatient care. Yes. Like, it's this is how is this happening in a country that's like regulated to the teeth? Yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing. And it's a, the, actually, the, the owners of the hospital went to court on this week to have the hospital declared bankrupt. And and that's it. You know, immediately the, the, the gate has fallen, no one's getting paid, and they've got to clear the patients out as quickly as they can. This is, it's a crazy. And you can imagine what, what it must be like if, you, if you're, even if you're, never mind if you're a patient in the hospital in intensive care or whatever, but also if you're just, you know, if you're turning up. If you're expecting to start something like chemotherapy next right. week, and you know you've got your consultant in that hospital, and all of a sudden you don't know who you're going to see, you right. don't know when it's going to happen, yeah, it's chaos. You yeah, know. this is just it's the madness. Of, yeah, and as you say, the the fact that uh, that you know we have a situation where hospitals can go bust because you know we have a 
yeah, sort of privately funded healthcare system where if your hospital doesn't turn a profit, it it goes under. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, of course, as someone who comes from the experience of the NHS, like I, I don't mean, yeah, in the US, hospitals are also privatized, but it just it does seem like madness to me that this is not a system that is better regulated. And I imagine after all of this, which has been a total yeah. uh, unmitigated disaster, uh, that the the government is going to probably take some plans to, I don't know, shore up financing for hospitals or regulate how these sort of like situations can occur. Yeah, and there's all kinds of regulation as well for the health insurance sector, where health yeah. insurers have to have these contingency funds in place to make sure that if they do enter financial trouble, that there's the money available to keep to make sure that patients still get their health care. So right. why isn't there a setup like that for, for the hospitals, hospitals? Yeah, to make sure they can, you know, they don't have to suddenly just you know, literally clear the premises yeah. at, um, at a couple of days' notice. Well, and also, I, I mean, I just think it's it seems crazy to me also that, that hospitals appear to just go through like a normal bankruptcy proceedings in the same way that I would if I stopped paying the mortgage on my house, right? Mm. Like, you would think that there would be some sort of special system for this where they're going to be accommodating towards yeah. the fact that, you know, people are infirm and old and stressed and having difficult times and all these kinds of things. And also that, like, you know, if... Look, if Dutch News went bankrupt tomorrow and there was, like, no money, then, yeah. like, fine. I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing and it's bad. But, like, I wouldn't turn up, like, without getting paid. No, no offense, Dutch News. But, you know, I think these doctors and these nurses, I mean, they feel a real, like, sense of moral obligation to turn do, up. Yeah. But that was one of the things that came out in reporting this week about, uh, especially the Slotafat Hospital. It was, it was kind of... It was set up in the 1970s when they thought they were going to need another hospital for Amsterdam because the population was growing. Actually, it wasn't. It started to shrink. So there's always a question mark about whether it was a bit surplus to requirements. And it was very much um, the hospital itself was it was in an area where lots of uh, kind of poorer families and immigrants uh, lived. And it was much a social enterprise as it was as, as a kind of uh, as a hospital. It was, it, it was run very much. You know, kind of community lines. People talk about the kind of community spirit there. Everyone was very informal. They, they, they the doctors and patients addressed each other with the, with a yay form. Yeah. All that kind of thing. They had a very sort of nice com- communal atmosphere. But that kind of thing isn't really viable in a kind of market-driven healthcare economy. Yeah. And you know, but, but how do you provide that kind of service? Because it meant that you know, that vulnerable people, poorer people, migrants were actually getting good quality healthcare. How are you going to provide that when, uh, when that facility is gone? And yeah. it's a real, it's a real worry. Yeah, I don't know. It'll be, um, we will, we will keep everyone updated as to, to sort of like what happens here. For the first time, less than 50% of the Dutch population identify with a religious faith. According to the Dutch Central Statistics Bureau, the CBS, only 49.3% of people in the Netherlands identify with a religious faith in 2017, compared to 54% in 2012. Roman Catholics remain the largest religious group with 24%, followed by 6% identifying as Protestant. Actually, that seems like off to me, That right? seems yeah. very low, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, the third largest religious group are Muslims who compromise 5% of the population. 6% identify as another religion, which includes uh, Jews and Buddhists and Hindus. Uh, the figures also show a continued decline in church attendance. 75% of people say that they rarely or never attend a religious service, while only 10% are visiting churches or mosques on a regular basis. So which groups uh, are most likely to believe in God and uh, which the least when they break down these figures? Uh, well, religious people believe in God the most and atheist people believe in God the least. 
<laughs> uh, the largest religious group of the elderly. I don't think this surprises they have anybody. They kind of vested interest in Exactly. Yeah. 71% of people over the age of 75 say they have a religious faith and one in three attend services regularly. So two thirds of people uh, without a, a university degree with a basic education believe in God. Um, and 20% of them uh, attend church regularly mm. or some religious institution regularly. Whereas uh, only a third of people with a university education say they are religious and only 12% of them regularly attend church. Yeah. Um, I think the uh, research also found that most of the decline was down to uh, Catholics. Uh, yeah. That was when the biggest decline, actually, particularly in church going, yeah. was down, whereas the others are kind of flatlined. Yeah. So, I mean, so it's Protestants, which uh, I was amazed actually only 6%. I think it's crazy to There are two streams of Protestant church. Yeah. So there's a Herform to Nechwe Fumit, which are now combined into a single Protestant church because there just aren't enough of them. There's not enough to, of them to, to do justify anything. two religious yeah. streams. Yeah, that's but, interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think they said as well um, it's, it's about 5% of the country Muslims of which about half go to mosque yeah. regularly I think so yeah. or, or mosque attenders so yeah again that's it um, seems to sort of underline the whole kind of uh, far right PFFA paranoia about Muslims taking over is a little doesn't really square with the statistics no not at all yeah uh, um, although it does seem insane to me that the same percentage of the population basically identify as Protestants as a, and uh, as Muslims in this country. Yeah, right? and, like, and and the same proportion identifies with other religions yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah so there's in, like just as many Jews and Buddhists like yeah. running around. Yeah, it's it's a, it's certainly this. I found the statistics very surprising. Yeah. But, uh, but it's, it's certainly been a thing, maybe it's about an overlooked social phenomenon that church goings declined very rapidly in the Netherlands since yeah. the war. It's something that uh, I remember James Kennedy pointed, um, uh, makes a lot uh, about you know, a lot of the social change and the kind of, you know, the more kind of, um, uh, the sort of social reforms of the last 30 years have been linked to the fact that people are less religious, religious. and less devout. Yeah. And therefore more there's more accommodation for things like gay rights and euthanasia how can we export like... this to america yeah, america it... could really use like a lot, really less jesus, a lot of that, yeah. a lot less jesus yeah. king willem alexander and queen maxima have been on a state visit to britain this week the first by a dutch monarch since 1982 although the visit was mainly ceremonial it was dominated by the looming shadow of brexit with the royal couple meeting members of the dutch expat community Foreign Minister Steph Block, who travelled with the Royal Party, lucky them, also said a, quote, decent solution, quote, would be found for British expats living in the Netherlands, even if, as seems increasingly likely, Britain leaves the European Union without a deal at the end of March. You're so concerned about this, Gordon, that you asked if I could hide you in my Krautbrampter this morning when you came over to Now you've told everybody. You can't do it now. Uh, we can edit that out <laughs> if you need to. It's fine. Uh, the king also underscored the point in a speech to both houses of parliament when he said the 50,000 Brits in the Netherlands and the 150,000 Dutch nationals in the UK deserved special attention. I understand how difficult this is for them and I trust that this uncertainty will be resolved, the king said. Anyone reading the script would think I had some kind of vested interest in the particular aspect of this. In visit, particular aspect. Yeah. I mean, it's this is. Um, <laughs> but it was a big, you know, he kept coming back to it. And even in his uh, speech at dinner, he, he stood next to Queen Elizabeth and said, as Europeans, we very much regret the decision of the British people to the EU, though we totally respect it. Yeah, yeah. it's very, it was very subtweety. Yeah. I was uh, I was at this event in, uh, in Rotterdam last night that was mostly Dutch people. There was like one British guy. And of course, I felt I felt very bad for him because I think... Dutch people who don't have a lot of interaction with the international community, like, don't quite realize, I think, how emotional this whole thing is for, mm. you know, British expats who are living here. And so, like, 
people just kept bringing up Brexit with this guy and you could just tell that it was like soul crushing. Like, you know, he's having to make all these like extremely difficult decisions. And also, I mean, he's working for a multinational company and there's a lot of other British people there. And so they're trying to decide what they're going to do. And it just seems like such a mess. And then it was just constantly like, Oh, are you British? So how do you feel about this whole Brexit thing? And he's like, it's (laughs) terrible. How many times do I have to say (laughs) that? His face crumbling. Yeah, it was really bad. So were there any other uh, good uh, good nuggets from the uh, the king's speech? Uh, yes, well, showing characteristic Dutch tact, the king mentioned the war, uh, specifically the four maritime wars that the English and the Dutch fought in the 17th century. And he also pointed out that it was a member of the House of Orange who had the, quote, dubious honour of leading the last successful invasion of the English kingdom. Not Scotland at that time. Scotland had a very good trading relationship with the Netherlands. And, uh, oh, for once, uh, it's not your fault, huh? <laughs> no, um, completely uh, no, no, exempt from this. Uh, He also said the current constitutional monarchy in the uh, UK is founded on the Bill of Rights that William and Mary authorised in 1689, which included things like free elections, freedom of speech, and protection from arbitrary power and Nigel Farage. (laughs) But we don't get protected from Boris Johnson, apparently. No, that was a fatal flaw. Okay, so inquiring minds want to know, Gordon. Tell us about the banquet. I want to hear about the food. This is the only thing that anyone really cares about. Yeah, I don't care about anything else. What's the food and what's the the whole kind of decor of the thing? So it was, a, it was a dinner for 170 people, including NOS's correspondent Tim DeVitt managed to get uh, smuggled in, probably in a bookcase or something. Of course. And he, he, he gave sort of a full <laughs> account. Even though he was, he was sitting right at the back of the room, you see the banqueting hall. Yeah. It's about, you know, it's about the size of a small province. So he was at the back of the room, you know, sort of straining to hear what uh, the Queen was saying. But anyway, he was very excited about it on NOS this week. Uh, ATL gave a detailed breakdown of the menu, which started what they described as a roulade in the champagne sauce, but I have to say, even the British upper classes wouldn't stoop as low as eating roulade. It was actually poached over sole. Of course. Yeah. Uh, the main course was tenderloin of beef with spinach, green beans, and braised red cabbage on the side, uh, followed by an artichoke salad. So lots of uh, boiled vegetables, which would have gone down very well with the British and the Dutch. Pretty much. Yeah. And for dessert, there was what ATL described as a treat for Maxima, which is a dark chocolate mandarin puree with coffee cream. Now you're talking. I, that sounds terrible. That sounds better than anything else that was on the menu. That's not true. I would definitely eat beef tenderloin over that. I <laughs> oh, dis- that's true. I dislike immensely uh, citrus in my desserts. I have, yeah. a, I have very strong feelings about this. Yeah. Um, the broadcaster also noted that six different wines were served, but there were only five wine glasses for each guest, so clearly the Brexit cuts are already starting to take hold. That's, that's terrible. Yeah. That's really a disaster. When you can only have five wine glasses. I know. How yeah. can you live? No. I mean, no one no one should have to live like that. No. no I mean, it's, especially the Queen. I mean, that's yeah. one embarrassment for her. It's really a... Terrible. So, so tell me something about a diet. Diamond Gordon. Uh, I hear you were reading about tiaras this morning. I don't want to talk about that again. <laughs> I'm trying to erase the memory. We are definitely going to run the headline for this podcast about Gordon reading about tiaras in W Magazine. Is that correct? I've forgotten. No, no, you haven't. And you sent it over WhatsApp, so I have a text version. It was, it was the online publication, W Magazine, which seems to be about royalties and about royals. And is it your favorite fashions. publication, Gordon? Do you it's, s- my f- it's the best thing I've ever read about tiaras. I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> the Daily Telegraph, which always likes to pick up on these details, noted that Queen Maxima was wearing the fabled Stuart Diamond in her tiara, which is a 40 carat gemstone last worn in Britain 46 years ago by Queen Juliana on her state visits. So that was the last state visit but one. Nice. Uh, it was purchased by Queen Mary II, who was the wife of William III in 1690. Uh, yeah, the diamond wasn't a very auspicious purchase as uh, Queen Mary died of smallpox four years later, at which point, uh, and then when William died in 1702, it came back to the Netherlands, although not without a fight from Mary's sister Anne, who sued 
um, her brother-in-law to try and uh, keep the diamond in Britain. That sounds very British. Yeah. Um, it's also not to be confused with Stuart Diamond, a 70-year-old American journalist and academic who wrote a book called Getting More, all about the uh, fine arts of negotiation, which might have been a very useful present for Theresa May. I don't know how you managed to shoehorn that in here, but thank you for that fun fact. <laughs> because the patriarchy is alive and well, even in the Netherlands, the Stichting Werk Group Harkenera has written a letter to Mark Rutte this week asking for an apology on behalf of the so-called Moffenhora, or, and I can't believe I have to say this, kraut whores. The outrageously terrible term refers to women who had relationships with German soldiers during World War II. After the Netherlands was liberated, many women who engaged in such relationships were humiliated, incarcerated, and raped, often with the involvement of the members of the Dutch Home Guard, which was the sort of state representation at the time. The kind of it was a pretty force. lawless time, I think, so it wasn't really... Yeah. yeah. They often had their hair shaved off and were subject to mob abuse. There are some horrible photos uh, that went along with this story. Of course, many of those relationships were coercive, as the Germans were the occupying force at the time, though, regardless, no one deserves to be raped or spit on for who they date. I'd just like to put that out there as a disclaimer. Yeah, I don't know this very controversial point of view. Yeah. I, uh, I, you would think so, but we no. posted this on Facebook, and then people were like, well, they slept with a German. And if yeah. I could find all of those people on Facebook, I would go have a stern talking to with them, because this yeah, is I'm not sure deserved. Would. Yeah. Yeah. It would end up with me shaving them and spitting on them, it so was, this is not going to end these well for anybody. Probably should, these people would probably be well advised to go into hiding Yeah, right now, exactly. So not, and not in my crowd room. Not in crowd room. Yeah. It's kind of I kind of find it fascinating that, that, that there's this sort of great social stigma about uh, you know uh, sleeping with the enemy, and lots of women were obviously publicly humiliated and shamed for collaborating with the Germans in this way, whereas uh, you know men who collaborated with the Germans in often more damaging ways um, after the war weren't didn't have their heads shaved in public, and quite in fact quite often were just quietly um, allowed to carry on with sort of regular jobs um, in, in, in the community. And why do we think that is? Yeah. Well, I mean, be? what on earth could be the difference? Well, how, well, how does that work? I have exactly. no idea. Anyway, but this demand didn't just come from nowhere, did it? There was something else this week. Last week, Norwegian Prime Minister Erna Solberg apologised for the way uh, women with German boyfriends or husbands were treated in her country as part of the 70-year United Nations Treaty on Human Rights. So this wasn't just a thing that happened in the Netherlands. It happened in a lot of occupied uh, countries. Absolutely, yeah. Um, So are we expecting an apology to be forthcoming? I don't know. I mean, it seems to have caused like a lot of discussion out there in the world. So maybe? I mean, it seems Mm. like a pretty benign thing for for Rutte to be able to do if he wanted to like issue an apology, but he has not indicated at all if he's interested. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure that's uh, quite a good uh, thing. He, he's not big on apologising for historic mistakes. No, is that is that past? is true. Yeah, so. I mean, they're, they're still sort of a, haven't got round to apologising for Indonesia for um, killing most of them in the War of Independence. Minor so, detail. Yeah. In sports news, a deflected goal in injury time from the boot of Nusa Mazurari has put Ajax in an excellent position to progress from their Champions League group. Victory over Benfica means the Amsterdam club will qualify if they win the return game in Portugal on November the 7th. Masrari said the goal was even more special than his equaliser against Bayern Munich in the previous game, not least because his mother was in the stadium to watch him. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's very nice. And actually, after the uh, after the game, he went over to a camera and sort of signed "I love you, mum" to the because uh, apparently she she gets very sort of nervous and she doesn't like uh, going to watch his games because it's too overwhelming. Yeah. But she made a special exception this time. Oh, that's and so he scored a goal. So that's that was nice. cute. That was lovely. Um, in the other match, uh, Bayern beat AK Athens to stay level on seven points with Ajax. The other Dutch club in Champions League action was PSV. They scored late on to pick up their first point in the competition. Uh, Luke de Jong's equaliser against Tottenham came three minutes from the end. That was after Spurs goalkeeper Hugo Lloris had been sent off. 
Uh, the result leaves Barcelona and Inter Milan strong favourites to go through from that group, but PSV still have hopes of qualifying for the Europa League. So uh, I hear the PSV fans were committing the worst of all possible offences this week, Gordon. Uh, and what is that? Wasting beer. Yeah, well, that's um, uh, possibly only if you use beer in the loosest definition of the word. Yeah. Uh, the club was fined €15,000 by UEFA because spectators threw plastic glass of beer onto the pitch during the game. Um, but one of the sponsors of um, uh, Champions League football is called Heineken, so the only beer served at Champions League games is Heineken. And maybe if they had a slightly better quality of uh, product, then uh, that wouldn't be a problem. That seems reasonable. Yeah. Um, so is Kiki Berton still in the finals? Yes, she is. Uh, there's a breaking news on Friday morning that uh, she qualified for the semi-finals of the end-of-season ATP tournament. Um, that was after her opponent, uh, Naomi Osaka of Japan, retired uh, after one set with an injury. Uh, Berton won her first match against Germany's Annelie Kerber um, and uh, was then went a break-up in the third set in the second game against Sloane Stevens, but Stevens. Uh, fought back to win that match and that meant that Burton's was facing an all-or-nothing contest in the last game against Osaka but she's now progressed oh, good for her yeah. congratulations so well done to Kiki finally this week in some adorable news a very cute cat was discovered after hitching a 700 kilometer ride around the entire country the four-month-old tabby snuck into a delivery van in Austin in Brabant and took off an adventure before he was discovered many hours later by the delivery driver who took the kitty to a veterinary clinic the cat was without a chip so it wasn't immediately known who the owners were but after a post about the traveler went viral on Facebook his owners were found and the delivery driver has offered to return the four-legged adventurer thus completing their last leg of their journey together touching it's very yeah. touching and where did the cat actually end up uh in some other town in brabant it turns out that he basically made a big giant circle <laughs> oh going in circles yeah, well, yeah. Um, do, do we know where he'd been on his uh on yeah his a whole bunch of places yeah. he went the whole way to Groningen. he was in friesland <laughs> like yeah he, he, he got a good tour of the country wow. so good for him yeah but his owner said that his brother missed him very much and so they were happy for him to come so home. happy for him to come home yeah and uh, obviously this cat would do absolutely anything to get out of brabant and yet and yet managed, still, still ended managed. up in brabant no yeah. he didn't yeah. make like a dash for it while he was in the ronstadt but he just yeah. he just hung out and went back to brabant he just uh, wanted to go home are we sure he wasn't delivering uh mdma around the country i mean from the, from the brabant drugs labs probably yeah he, he had to get back and check in <laughs> on his drugs lab exactly he just ran out of supplies We'll be discussing the legacy of Vimcock after this word from our sponsors. For over 30 years, Access has been helping internationals settle in the Netherlands. Access is staffed by an all-volunteer team, themselves internationals, who know firsthand about the challenges of settling in a new country. They can answer your questions or guide you to the right resources, and they also offer an on-call counselling service. You can find out more information about Access on their website, access-nl.org, by emailing the helpdesk at helpdesk at access-nl.org or by dropping into one of their expat centres in The Hague, Utrecht, Amsterdam or Leiden. Wim Kok, the former Prime Minister of the Netherlands, died this week of heart failure at an Amsterdam hospital. He was 80 years old. Koch had served as Prime Minister as the leader of the Labour Party, or the PvdA, from 1994 to 2002. His death was widely mourned in the country. So to begin with, maybe, Gordon, you could say something about kind of who Vimcock was as a person, kind of what the reactions have been to sort of his passing? Yeah, he did sort of come across as a very um, uh, much-loved uh, Prime Minister. He was uh, Prime Minister at the time, obviously, when there's a lot of uh, social reform in the country, his, his cabinet 
uh, presided over things like um, legalizing um, uh, equal marriage, which of course the Netherlands was the first country in the in the world to do that yep. in two thousand and one, uh, and euthanasia. And of course, one of the reasons that was possible was that it was the first cabinet where the Christian Democrats were not in government right. since the war. So it was a cabinet of the Labour Party, with uh, propped up by the Liberal Party, the mm-hmm. Day and. Uh, Deus and Zestor, thank you. Yeah. Because Deus and Zestor were, were the party that then uh, um, pushed through the euthanasia reforms. So he, he was, um, I think, as a character who's also the last prime minister who was born before the war, so had a memory of uh, the wartime, so he was of that generation. Yeah. And people said of him, he was, uh, he was kind of, beca- and, and he came from the trade union movement as well in the 1970s. He came up, he was the leader of the FNV yeah. trade union. So um, people said he was a very sort of typical Dutch person of the generation, quite unpretentious. So someone said, uh, if you picture someone biking on a dike in a headwind, you see Vim Cock. Yeah, that's. A, I think yeah. that's pretty accurate. Yeah, he used to go on holiday in Britain with his wife, and he would just they would just get in their Vauxhall Cadet and just get the boat over. You know, no social security or yeah. kind of flashy BMWs or any of that for him. He yeah. just and he'd just go camping. You can sort of picture him as a guy kind of sitting in his in his folding campsite chair, yeah. listening to the Tour de France on Radio Nederlands Vieux en Route. He was, he was that kind of character. Probably took his own Albert Heijn peanut butter with him. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Mark Verretta said that he was. Someone of great integrity from whom the country had a lot to thank, um, which is, you know, he's not, it's not from the same party. That's not always something no. I think that you see a lot of times. So he was really, uh, really beloved. Yeah, and he, he said the country had become a more you know, attractive place in the in the years of Cox's administration as well. And uh, Lilian Plumen, who obviously is a, these days a senior figure in the PFDA, said, said Cox was a politician who was really concerned with what was good for the country, not just for himself. So you said he started his career in uh, the unions, um, and he was involved with the uh, the Vassenaar deal. So can you tell us a little bit more about that, Gordon? Yeah, so he was leader of the NFA union um, at the time of the Vassenaar deal during the cabinet of um, Groot Libbers, who was a Christian Democrat Prime Minister, who also died recently, of course. Yeah. Um, so the two of them together cut out the Vassenaar deal, which was essentially a deal which kind of kept the Dutch welfare state intact in return for a, a wage cut. So it was a classic sort of quid pro quo sort yeah. of a polder deal, and it was seen as kind of very much the uh, the foundation of the, the polder model yeah. of different groups, unions and employers coming together um, and sitting around the table and negotiating until they come to a deal. And that's very much the way Dutch politics has been done yeah. since 1980s. It's quite distinct from, say, you know, in the UK you had Thatcherism, which very much, you know, ripped the heart out of the welfare state and the trade union movement. Right. In the Netherlands, they still play an integral part yeah. in the political process, and that's very much due down to this process that was set up yeah. by Koch and Ruud Lubbers in 1982. It was highly criticised by his own party at the time, um, because Lubbers was cutting government expenses uh, drastically, so there's a certain measure of austerity in the yeah. mix. But in hindsight, it does sort of show Koch's character as a polder model kind of man. And yeah. that was the kind of thing that I think came through in a lot of commentary about Koch, that although he was a Labour leader, uh, a centre-left politician, he governed in some ways in quite a kind of neoliberal style. Right. Um, and uh, that he sort of he was, he was almost the pioneer of uh, you know what was later called uh, the third way by you know, Blair and Clinton. Yeah. That uh, Clinton, I think himself at one point said that he he saw Koch as this kind of inspiration in that. He didn't say cock. He he said coke. He, he said sorry. Said, we'll come to that. Yes. He used to. Yeah. <laughs> cock also I should say uh, he led uh, as in his trade union years um, merged the two major unions into one large sort of super union which is called the FNV which uh, still is one of the main Dutch trade unions today. Yeah. So his cabinets were referred to as like the purple cabinets. Yeah. Um, why is that? 
Because usually cabinets are named after the prime minister, so the, you know, yeah. the current, current cabinet's called the Rutter cabinets. Right. These are called the past cabinets, because if you mix the, the colours of the parties, it was the red of the Pefidea and the blue of the Fevede, which uh, gives you purple. Except maybe, there was the maybe green wrong. of the De Sassassessta, yeah, so it's, it's a really in. ugly purple. It's I a think. really sort of horrible, yeah, you wouldn't want it on your living room walls. No, for sure not. But yeah. there was an, it was an interesting thing, right, because uh, in the in the election where he became prime minister, Labour didn't do particularly well. No. Um, they just did less bad than the same did who lost something like 20 seats right yeah, in, in parliament basically the, the CDA i think had had their best ever result at the previous election yeah um and they lost 20 seats which meant that the PFDA sort of uh, overtook them by virtue of not falling back quite as fast right so they lost 12 seats although some people it was called kind of a victory defeat yeah because actually what happened was that yeah the political scene fragmented so the two next largest parties of PFDA and Daisy Sassesta came through strongly but neither of them was big enough to lead the coalition. Right. So you had to have one of the parties that lost seats becoming yeah. the main government becoming party. The main government. In the second election, they did gain seats. Yeah. The and then in the third one, uh, they fell back again. Yeah. And there's also some mood in the country that people just... Had had, they wanted to break from the CDR. Yeah. The CDR had governed solidly since the war, yeah. and people just felt it was time for a change of for scene. For a change. Yeah. So I know that he sort of was in power for the introduction of euthanasia and also same-sex marriage. So what, what did he do? How did he do as prime minister? He was generally very well thought of as a prime minister. It helped, of course, it was um, uh, an economic um, boom time. So it was, uh, that always is, That's always a good thing for it's politicians. It's always very useful, yes, politicians. Um, and he'd been finance minister, of course, uh, before Even he was better prime for minister. Him. So uh, after the second election, uh, the coalition, uh, continued, but that was when the real criticism started to emerge, although he managed to divert a couple of crises, one of which was uh, called the Night of Wiechel, um where Hans Wiechel, a senator from the FFD, refused to uh, toe the party line, and of course there was uh, he, he had this very difficult situation to deal with, um, with um, Maxima Zorogita, who was the fiancé at the time of uh, Willem, Prince Willem Alexander yeah. her father had been agriculture minister during the Junta dictatorship in Argentina right? and Koch had sort of uh, very delicately handled negotiations he actually came up with the solution that Philip Manzander could only marry Maxima if uh, her father was not invited um, that's intense man <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. pretty, yeah, it was pretty and it, it was extra intense because Willem Alexander had made it very clear that he was going to marry Maxima regardless of what the parliament wanted yeah. which would have created a sort of like royal crisis because yes. they wouldn't have allowed him to be king if he had become this and also the, the there there had been some problems with similar situations with some of his brothers who had married people mm-hmm. that the the parliament hadn't approved of so yeah it's a it's a tough uh, it was a tough needle to thread i think yeah definitely and, and of course because he was crown prince so he was yeah. heir to the throne yeah so yeah there was potentially quite a big constitutional crisis you kind of forget now that Willem alexander is so well installed as king but yeah cock had to settle all that out and of course the main event that's sort of dominated his whole career really as uh, prime minister which uh, everyone's probably listened to is wondering when we're going to get around to this was to bring Srebrenica, yeah, the, uh, the the massacre at uh, Srebrenica during the Bosnian Wars, yeah. where eight thousand Bosnian Muslims died during in what was supposed to be a UN safe haven, which was guarded by the Dutch. So the Dutch responsible for the safekeeping yeah. um, of uh, of those people, um, and of course um, the Bosnian Serbs simply went in and massacred them. And yeah. Yeah, and there's been a lot of controversy about this yeah. because, of course, like the Dutch soldiers were not like really armed, and they were expecting air support that like yeah. never came. So there's a lot of there's a, a lot of ongoing discussion about it. But there is, and we're currently continue to be on. There have been court cases as well, of course, yeah. about uh, to how far the Dutch um, government was responsible, how yeah. far the UN were responsible for not um, giving them enough supplies, yeah. and enough equipment to to defend the base adequately. Right. 
Uh, but they had the primary responsibility for the safety yeah. of the base. And to the credit of Vimcock, you have to say that his government ordered an inquiry into this a year after, quite soon after yeah. the massacre, to say we want an absolute thorough investigation and get to the bottom of it. And when the report came back and said the Dutch government was culpable, the cabinet resigned. Yeah, the entire cabinet the resigned. The entire cabinet resigned. The whole cabinet resigned. Yeah. But it definitely haunted him, the fact that the, the, this crucial moment of what was the worst war crime in Europe since 1945 yeah. that the Dutch military and the Dutch government were found wanting and it was and the report very much found that actually the chain of command um, from the government to the to the soldiers was uh, was at fault yeah one of the many things was at fault so Cox said later in an interview that that was an open wound uh, that will never heal and it's definitely the thing that you know left a shadow over his um, his premiership yeah it seems pretty accurate so what happened to him uh, uh, after the uh, the resignation so Cox then decided he wouldn't run for a third term um, he appointed Ad Melkert uh, who was a very uncharismatic sort of politician uh, as his successor in 2001 but he said in hindsight that he should have gone for a third term especially after 9-11 the past government had booked the first uh, budget surplus in uh, several years um, but there was criticism because um, waiting lists had developed for healthcare and there were problems with public transport and uh, public safety Melkert lost the election very very heavily and had resigned as party leader almost yeah. immediately part of that was because of the uh, emergence of Pim Fortin as a kind of maverick uh, right-wing populist yeah. politician and uh, you know, kind of old-fashioned um, sort of convivial Labour Party politicians like Melkert didn't really have an answer yeah. to Fortin's very direct, very sort of flamboyant style of politics. Right. And uh, he just looked like a very grey, unimpressive figure. Right, um, Com- comparatively. Compared to Pim Fortin. And of course Pim Fortin very much targeted the past cabinets. Yeah. Um, he wrote a book called The, the Poundhoven from Paris, which yeah. was sort of the, the rubbish heaps of the purple, of, of the purple cabinet. Yeah. Uh, describing how Vimcock had made a mess in the Netherlands, which actually, when you look at the state of the country at that time, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, but the the blame there was mostly on uh, was mostly on immigration, which of course did increase during that time. Although there were a lot of allegations of all these problems being caused by immigrants, which yeah. were not. Yeah, well, Fortin was the first first politician really who deliberately sort of singled out and targeted Muslims as the source of all ills right. in the Netherlands, which. Uh, doesn't bear much uh, comparison to reality, but yeah. it struck a chord yeah. with a lot of people, and with a lot of people in kind of labour-supporting um, areas of the country as well, yeah. who felt that uh, you know that their neighbours had changed in yeah. ways that they didn't recognise and yeah. had no say in, and they saw the immigrants as sort of um, symbolic of uh, of all the, the problems. problems that emerged in their lives. Yeah. So for that, made Fortan very popular. Um, he was. Uh, and he was a real kind of draw on television as well, and there was a definite kind of changing culture as Cox kind of a term as a prime minister was coming to an end. Whether he could have resisted the rise of Fortan any better yeah. than someone at Melkert is it's hard to say. Yeah. So what did he go on to do after he was prime minister? Because he sort of didn't disappear, I guess. No, he didn't. I mean, by the time he his career as prime minister ended, he was 64 years old. But he still did carry on in public life. He had a number of uh, roles on the supervisory boards, including the ING and Shell. There was yeah. a bit of a row about him approving very big pay rises for yeah. ING executives, which didn't really square with his past as a trade yeah. union leader. And he was still very much an active observer of, of, of politics. And uh, Mark Rutter, I think, said that he uh, often kind of sought advice from Cock as one yeah. of the few people who had experience of doing his job yeah yeah so, yeah, yeah, I can yeah see and that. Was someone he looked up to and respected yeah with the news broke about his death while i was at a at a wedding this weekend and my my dutch partner and a number of the dutch people that we were sitting with had just very nice things to say yeah. despite being from different like sort of political affiliations and you know not maybe old enough to really like remember a lot of the things that uh that that cock did at least while he was prime minister so but they he did seem to be very, a very beloved figure yeah That is all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. 
We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. Thanks, Ruby. That, thanks, Ruby. <laughs> you can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. My thanks to Gordon Derrick. And actually, honestly, to Paul, he did write a lot of script and is currently and he, working he on the editing. And he's speak. going to do the Photoshop. So mm-hmm. no slagging on Paul. I'm Molly Quell. We'll be back next week.